The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay, welcome to uh, RNA2, which of course begins with, with a uh, RNA1 overview, where, where we talked about uh, the secondary and tertiary structure of RNA and how one uh, integrates dynamic programming in those uh, algorithms. And then that, lead, that, that is important in the way we go about measurements and it affects uh, certain technical senses and an, an interpretation level affects how we think about the quantitation of RNA, which was the main topic last time. And then today, after we have the data analyzed uh, so that we have RNA quantitation and the random systematic errors established, some idea of what the interpretation consequences are, and maybe time series data, the question is what do we do next? And what we do next is uh, basically two things, at least for today's uh, topic. We cluster to ask which gene expression products, whether they're RNA or protein, go up and down together. And if they go up and down together under a variety of conditions or time points in various conditions, then we want to know why. What is the mechanism by which they go up and down and what, to what common goal are these gene products directed? In other words, uh, two different whys. Why mechanistically and why in terms of uh, the way that they can help the entire system. So in order to <coughs> deal with clustering, we'll go into quite some detail about the <coughs> options that we have for doing clustering. And you'll see there are quite a number of combinations. We'll go through distance and similarity me measures, uh, uh, hierarchical and non-hierarchical clustering and classification. Now this is kind of the roadmap, the overview of all the different uh, decisions that we need to make in order to uh, establish gene, gene expression clustering. Going from uh, left to right, we've got data normalization choices, we've got distance metrics to choose from, uh, linkage methods when we link two uh, clusters together, two RNA types together, um, what method do we use, and finally the clustering method itself. <coughs> on the uh, far right-hand side of slide three. And then the, the, if working backwards from the clustering method, you've got two basic goals, you can think. Uh, typically, when we think of clustering, we're mainly talking about unsupervised methods. That is to say, where we're really letting the data tell us what it has to say, um, what sort of gene expression products go together. And it's possibly a... a, a uh, alternative or a sequelae to that would be to ask uh, what can we use those discoveries in a sense to make to supervised classification. So rather than discovering what gene products go up and down together, to ask those that go up and down together to use this, to allow us to classify the different conditions from which the, the gene expression has been ascertained. So 
you know, classify different pathological states, infectious states, cancer states, and so on. Okay, so now we're going to kind of work backwards from the, the unsupervised clustering methods um, and then move into, uh, into uh, distance metrics and lin linkage. So we're basically moving, working from right to left on this chart. First, with an overview of what the goals of such uh, quantitation classification methods would be. This, is, this has been on a, on a, in a previous lecture, but basically we can start with the RNA data, which we've re uh, reduced to a table in the previous uh, lecture. You can think of it as a table of uh, RNA expressions along the vertical axis and different conditions along the horizontal axis where we can have um, fold change, say ratios or absolute levels, and we can do either uh, clustering or classification. In the, uh, when we do get to uh, clustering and discovery, one of the things we can do is use uh, motifs to get at uh, direct causality. These are just some uh, buzzwords that you will find uh, coming up in this lecture and, and problem set and outside. Uh, just examples of the two types of uh, goals of analyzing gene expression or even more general uh, collections of quantitative data. Uh, four examples, four examples of uh, unsupervised clustering, uh, k-means clustering, self-organizing maps, single value decomposition, functional component analysis. You may have heard these in various contexts. But I'm going to put them, I'm lumping them all together here under uh, this category and we'll, we'll particularly delve into k-means just as one example. We could delve into any of them, but we need to get some depth. Um, and then, just for your reference, here's some examples of uh, the supervised learning if we were going to go into the classification. Um, here's some examples of early uh, attempts at clustering. These are these are particularly interesting to, to to look at because they were because they were early and very little prior uh, literature. They tended to take a fresh fresher look at it than you might get in the most recent papers. Fewer assumptions and, and therefore more exposition about where they they feel uh, clustering comes in from other fields and is applicable to um, this field. The main dichotomy then pointing out here is you can cluster by gene, that is to say by RNA or gene product, RNA or protein, or you can cluster by condition cell type uh, or even time course. So you can think of that as by gene as this vertical axis, at least in the formats that most articles and, and this lecture will have it in, and then by condition will be your horizontal axis. Or you can do bi-clustering, which is clustering by both. And then down here is an example of, of, of one of many sources of free software that you can look at both for microarray analysis and for clustering. The general purpose of this is to divide samples into homo fairly homogeneous groups. Clearly, this, because of biological variation that can be meaningful or random, uh, these will not be perfectly homogeneous. Um, when we get when we find the co-regulated genes by some of the methods we talked about in previous um, classes, we'll want to know what the protein complexes are that are mechanistically regulating and the downstream functions of these. Uh, again, the major dichotomy 
among the unsupervised learning is whether you're doing hierarchical or non-hierarchical. Um, we'll show an example of each. Typically, hierarchical is represented by a tree, very similar to the trees that we had for sequence similarity and for pedigrees, uh, phylogeny, and so on. These are basically the, the terminal branches of the tree or the leaves of the tree are in the individual RNA species representing a vector of different RNA uh, quantitation. Uh, with the non-hierarchical, you'll tend to have uh, uh, represented, these are, these are visual representations as, as well as underlying algorithms, they'll be represented more as a, as a multidimensional uh, envelope, say a sphere or ellipse, that, that uh, tries to encompass a, a, a set of related gene expression values. Now we'll use diagrams like this, mainly the two on the far left-hand side of slide 9, where you'll have a fairly tight circular or spherical clusters uh, where it's pretty evident how they're connected. Or you can have certainly more elongated or more um, interpenetrating clusters. And how do we deal with these? The key terms that we'll try to uh, define, this is actually very similar to the ones we talked about before, where we have either distance or similarity. These are in the flip sides of the same uh, coin. Uh, the, the more, uh, <coughs> the greater the distance, then the less similarity. Um, the dendrograms are the same kind of uh, trees that we've been seeing before. Uh, now, the most general way of discussing distance measures is the Minkowski metric. This is actually a, a set of metrics. Um, and what we're going to be talking about here are two objects, which are really two, plus for the purpose of discussion, two RNAs, call them RNAx and RNAy, or gene X and gene Y, have P features, meaning you have P different conditions, P time points, uh, P we'll call them dimensions sometimes. And so this means that, that the gene expression of X under conditions 1 through P um, is, is compared to the gene expression of Y under those various conditions, too. You can think of these as vectors with P, P uh, entries in them. And so the distance is going to be some rth root of a, of a sum to the R power. And uh, we're going to go through three different examples of this. Uh, and I think you'll s hopefully by the time we've gone through uh, it, you'll see the advantages of this general and the specific forms. So the three examples will have R equals 2, 1, and infinity, slide 12. These are, these are the most common metrics, and, you'll, and you, you should see them as fairly familiar. Um, when R equals 2 in that formula, you now have the, the square root of the sum of squares. And this, was, this should remind you of your simple Cartesian plotting of uh, you know, two points, the distance between two points on graph paper where you can take any diagonal the shortest path. Um, on the other hand, if you are navigating the streets of Manhattan, uh, you will tend not to take diagonals through stone walls. You will tend to obey the blocks and it, it, you may have to go three blocks this way and four blocks that way rather than square root. And then finally, the, uh, the last one is the maximum distance that you might have to go in any particular direction. So you can think that 
if you take the the rth root of the sum of the of the different the differences in the uh, these two measures x and y measures of the two RNAs at the same um, condition that as r goes to infinity you're going to weight up the most the biggest distance difference along all the different axes and then you'll take the rth root of that and then it'll be basically the absolute value of that dif of that difference and and uh, so those are the three measures. But let's see some specific examples. Um, here we have two points. So you have, this is the simplest possible case, two RNAs under two different conditions. And let's say on this arbitrary scale, uh, the distance between Y and X along the dimension, horizontal dimension, which is, say, con you know, condition horizontal, uh, is four, and the condition vertical is three. That's the difference between them. Um, and it, where it is absolutely relative to the origin, it doesn't matter in, the, in any of these three metrics. Um, the, the diagonal, the, the direct distance or Euclidean distance, is going to be the square root of 4 squared plus 3 squared, which is going to be 5. And the Manhattan distance, you can't take that, uh, you can't go as the crow flies, you have to go four blocks uh, to the left and three blocks up. And that's 7. And then the maximum of the two measures, if you if you think of these as you know multi, many different um, measures, um, the, the the most the biggest distance in any particular di direction would be four. Now here's a uh, an example where the Manhattan distance um, is is called the Hamming distance when all the features are binary. And why is this interesting? I I mentioned. I think in the first lecture that many biologists and scientists in general, when they have the opportunity, will classify things as on and off, even when there is some underlying quantitative nature. A transistor can be on or off for all intents and purposes, and a gene circuit or a particular gene expression can be considered off or on, zero or one. And so now if you have, say, 17 different gene expression levels, this can be considered a 17-digit binary uh, string or, and uh, the two genes, A and B here, can be compared. And every time, if you're talking about distance rather than similarity, every time there's a conflict of 0, 1, or 1, 0, then you, you add that to the sum, and you have a total of, of five of these cases where there's a, a difference, so that the Hamming distance um, is five in this case. So you can see that this has some intuitive appeal if you're going to be doing this Boolean um, um, system biology, say. Here's another one. This is a fourth uh, measure of similarity or distance uh, here. And, and we brought it up before. Um, the correlation coefficient. This is a way of comparing this vector of RNA expression levels, X sub I, um, with why? So now instead of taking the difference between x and y sub i, which is what we were doing with the Minkowski metrics, we're taking the product of those two. But if, you, but if x and y are on some arbitrary uh, scale, um, then we won't, we won't really have a way of comparing one experiment to another. So we want, this is an example of normalization. We're going to use normalization a couple of different ways in this class. and. Uh, but they're all, they're all related in that you want to put them on a scale that's sort of universally recognizable, typically 0 to 1 or minus 1 to 1, in this case minus 1 to 1. And so what you do is in order to, to get it 
to the same uh, uh, center, you subtract the means from both the x and y. So now their, their centroid is at zero instead of at x bar, uh, which is just the, defined as the mean as usual. Um, and then to get the scale the same, or on some commonly re referenceable scale, you divide by their um, uh, product of the squares. So the result of this, as when we previously discussed correlation coefficient, is that the uh, correlation coefficient varies between minus 1 and 1. If it is 1, slide 16, it means that they are perfectly correlated, which is, of course, rare, but bear with us. If, if, the, if, they, if the gene products go up and down perfectly under all the conditions and all the time points that you look at, then they're going to get a uh, linear correlation coefficient of 1. If they're perfectly negatively correlated, uh, then they will uh, go up and down exactly out of phase or exactly when one is at this maximum, the other will be at minimum. And, uh, and if there's no linear correlation, then it will be a, a, a linear coefficient, correlation coefficient of zero. Now, there can be all kinds of complicated nonlinear relationships. They, I mean, they could be very, very uh, codependent, say quadratic, uh, and still have a, a zero for their linear correlation coefficient. So, exercise for the reader, which of these is 1, minus 1, and 0? Let's start with the upper left-hand one. Is that 1? Minus 1. Good. And this one? 1, right, and 0. Great. And... Uh, now, you, you will see that those have not been normalized because the correlation coefficient will do the normalization for us. In a moment, we will deal with, uh, we'll go back to Euclidean distances, but we'll, we'll, we will do a normalization first. Now, here's an example of uh, hierarchical clustering dendrogram. This happened to be done for tumors in normal tissues. And you can see uh, the tumors designated by T tend to cluster together and the normal tissues on the right-hand side of slide 18 tend to uh, cluster together. But it's not perfect. There's some interpenetration. You can see this would be a challenging classification problem. Um, the way that that hierarchical tree was derived is you basically start by saying each object, gene, and you're going to be measuring gene expression, which typically is RNA or protein, and you're going to call each individual RNA a cluster. It's a cluster of one. It's a trivial cluster. And then, as you look through each uh, step in the, in the hierarchical clustering, very similar to some of the greedy algorithms we use for, for uh, uh, sequence alignment, you take the two closest clusters, even if they're a cluster of one, and you'll merge them. And now I call that a new cluster. Now it's a cluster of two, and so on and so forth, until finally everything is in a cluster um, and, and you've traced, you've tra kept track of all the who's closest to who all the way, and that produces a tree. Now, in order to generate that tree, you've got, or other clustering methods, you've got a choice of the distance metric, uh, the way of putting together the distances that you've measured. Uh, so the distances we measured can be some Minkowski or correlation coefficient, but you can put them together by either focusing on the nearest neighbor of a cluster, or the furthest neighbor. That's the single link versus complete link, and we'll talk about that. And then the other methods that we won't talk about are centroid, 
which you can think of as the center of mass for the cluster as it, as it emerges, and the average, um, which is just the, uh, say, the mean of all the cross-cluster pairs. So you have two clusters and you do all pairwise. Okay, so let's do the single link versus the, uh, the complete link. First, the single link in slide 21. And th we're going to use exactly the same distance matrix for, for both these examples, so, uh, so you don't have to shift gears too much. The main thing, the only gear we're going to shift is between single and complete link. And we're using Euclidean distance here, um, which is the sum of square root of the sum of squares. And here, uh, you can see A, B are the two closest, and A, A and B are the furthest apart. And so the, the Euclidean distance for AB is 2 and AB is 6, for example. And the, so in the single link me me method, this kicks in once you start collapsing uh, the, the first link. So you make the link between A and B. That's obvious because it's the shortest distance. But how you collapse it depends on uh, and how you compare it to other points is what the single link method is about. So, so now AB is going to be treated as one unit, one cluster, and you're going to ask how far is AB from C? Well, since this is a single link, you're interested in the closest distance, and that's BC, and BC from the very first uh, leftmost matrix <coughs> was 3, so you fill in for the AB to C at 3. And similarly, the D is the closest point uh, from AB to D is 5, it's the diagonal from B to D, and so on, and you get, to, and, and, and that's how you've lost the top row, and it's three and five. And now, when you compare these, the, the next link you're going to make is going to be the smallest one in that whole table, which is three. And that happens to be the AB cluster is closest to C, and so that's going to be the next link you make. And then the rest of the game is over. It's just the ABC cluster is near D. So you can already imagine in your mind what that tree is going to look like. A and B are being closest, and then you bring in C, and then you finally bring in D. And you might think at this point, that's the only way to do this. But the complete link version of this exactly the same matrix, you start at the same place, A, B is still the closest one, so that's the one you're going to link together first. But how you score it as you do this linking is a little different now, because now you're concerned about completely all of the uh, distances from the A, B cluster to, say, C. Now... B is close, but A is far away, and we're interested in that greater distance as well. And so the whole cluster of AB gets the, the distance from A to C, the longest distance, 5. And so 5 goes in that position. And 6 goes as the longest distance from AB to D, which again is A to D. And so now you have a completely different, just toggle back and forth between slide 22 and 21. And you can see it went from 354 to 564. So now... When you make the next link, the first link is obvious in both cases, AB. The next link is now CD because the smallest one in that in that uh, two by two <coughs> matrix um, is four, and that happens between C and D. And now C and D are the next link, and then now the game's over. You collect CD and AB, and the link is uh, so now you can see you're going to get two very different trees from these. The the single link method on the left hand side of slide 23 gives. Uh, a, B, bringing in C, and finally D. While the complete link, you have uh, A, B, and C, B as two separate pairs, and then they come together at the end. Now, this is the simplest possible ex uh, example I could have come up with, 
uh, but I think it, it, it combined with the next couple of slides will drive home the importance of the uh, clustering method that you're using here, the linkage method, part of it. Um, again, focus in on the far left-hand side of uh, where you have sort of more compact spherical circular clusters or more elongated ones. We're going to take uh, three examples here, spherical, elongated, something in between, single length in the middle of uh, slide 25, and then complete length on the far right-hand side. In a single length, it, now you can kind of see why they're called single length and complete length. This is a different way of visualizing them. Here, the single length does a, a great job for the uh, top and bottom clusters, the, 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 the circular and the linear forms. But when you start getting something that's somewhere in between, you get this uh, weird uh, single length that, I, I, at least to my eye, uh, connects up the two clusters along the bottom here and then leaves this little cluster uh, as the second cluster. The complete length, on the other hand, where you're trying to measure all the distances uh, between previous clusters and, and, uh, and the new clusters you're going to be adding, uh, does well on the top one and the middle one, but does this weird thing with the, with the, uh, with the elongated clusters where it takes a small cluster that seems, to my eye, to uh, include things that are not that related. So the single link does well on the top and bottom, and the complete link does well on the top and middle. And so you can see that depending on what you think your data are going to look like, whether they're going to look like closely spaced but compact clusters, that might be uh, single link, and more elongated but, but separated uh, by distance, then you might want a complete link. Okay, so now where are we in this overall roadmap in slide 26? We've been moving from the right, where we've done, gone from clustering methods, supervised, unsupervised, hierarchical, non-hierarchical. We've gone through distance metrics and linkage metrics. Now let's uh, see how it plays out with one particular non-hierarchical me method. Uh, we've been focusing on hierarchical. Now we're going to go non-hierarchical k-means and bring in issues of data normalization, um, uh, in, in this case, um, gene normalization, where we're trying to put genes that are wildly different in their absolute value of expression on the same scale. It may even be, they may even, uh, so one might be a very small fluctuation at, at, at a kind of medium level, Another one could be very large fluctuation from, from baseline up to a very high level. Um, and you want to account for this difference in baseline and this difference in, in scale. And so what you do, and that's what all these, these three little normalized expression plots are, is they represent uh, this table, as I've mentioned, of genes along the vertical axis or gene expression levels uh, genes that are going to, where we're going to measure expression levels along the vertical axis and the time points or the conditions along the horizontal axis. And so there we have two representations. One is this kind of dot uh, cluster envelope representation in the middle um, where you have the, in this case, three dimensions, but in a case that's a little harder to visualize, uh, multi-dimensions, 17, 15 dimensions. Um, that's one representation where the origin is the, essentially the mean, where you normalize it, the mean becomes zero. 
and uh, and then the distance from that origin can be either positive or negative, um, and it's the number of standard deviations from the mean. That's the way that we're going to normalize it. So each of these individual plots would be the average behavior in each of these clusters, and we'll take a look at that. Um, the average and the deviation from the average. But the units here in the vertical axis of these little plots will be normalized expression, number of standard deviations within the cluster from the mean of the cluster. Um, now, when we're going to be measuring distances between clusters, where we have a, uh, the same normalized expression data table, and this 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 is the three dimension this is the three dimension in this case or multi-dimensional uh, representation where the origin is, is zero or the mean for each of the for each of the axes, and, uh, and the distance from the th th that zero mean is the number of standard deviations. And when we'll measure it, we'll measure the Euclidean distance, the square root of the sum of the squares, over all the dimensions. And I want to emphasize that the that each you know each of these clusters is not going if 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 uh, gene expression were regulated by transcription factors, which bound to every site with exactly the same binding constant. Uh, then you might, and if there were selection pressures forcing this to happen, where the, where the, where the uh, forcing everybody to be precisely, everything in a cluster to be precisely regulated, then these clusters would be really tight. It'd be almost a point, and uh, there'd be no overlap between them. But in reality, uh, there is no such selective pressures, and the transcription factors as a result are um, possibly purposefully diverse, and you get these spread clusters. And so, so so these little blue bars uh, on each of the points on these uh, time series plots, the normalized expression, the three time series plots, uh, those little blue bars don't necessarily represent experimental error. They represent the diversity of uh, gene expression within a cluster. Now, if you've accidentally made more uh, assigned fewer clusters than is, say, the natural number of clusters, then you'll get more dispersion in that number than uh, than you might want, and that might be a tip-off that you actually need more cluster. You need to divide it up into more clusters <coughs> and bring this down. Now, obviously, uh, if you break it up in too many uh, clusters, that will have a different uh, set of pathologies. You'll have uh, the, the distance between clusters. Some of the clusters will be abnormally close. They'll be almost as if they were right touching each other. And so that's, a, that's the tip-off that you have too many clusters. And, and the number of clusters is something that you can either um, determine in advance or you can discover as you go. But those, those are the examples of criteria you might use. Too much dispersion in those little blue air bars means that you've tried to lump too many things into one cluster. And too short a distance between uh, adjacent clusters means that you've probably divided them too finely. Now... How do we begin to assess whether the clustering methods that we're using are uh, optimal? We can, we've talked about all the different kinds of clustering methods that you can use. Uh, one of the ways to assess whether they are optimal, uh, we'll talk about many, but one is to look out, way outside the box to some resource that maybe the, the, the biological community has curated uh, functions. Now, they, they may mean this in, in very vague and frustrating ways, but they believe 
uh, we believe that they have done a good job and certainly an independent job of the experiment that's being done. The experiment that's being done is a, is a fresh uh, comprehensive gene expression analysis and so if you find a cluster from that gene expression analysis that coincides with this completely independently curated uh, database of functional categories, uh, it doesn't matter what MIPS means, it's some abbreviation from an inst for an institute, the, nor does it really matter what the gene names here mean. But what you, can, what you will find is that, that a particular set of genes, once you look it up in this database, will, will set off a flag that says ribosome. And you know what ribosome means. Is, and, uh, and others will be unknowns. But the point is that these will be a, 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 an orderly set, a set that's perhaps enriched, unexpectedly enriched, and you want to have some way of quantitating your surprise at finding this many of one type of function in your RNA cluster. In a way, this is what you hope to find. It's a pleasant surprise. You want your clusters to have some coherence in their function. You also want to find some surprises, either unknowns or, or new combinations of functions that you didn't expect. Now, this is an example of a, of a clustering experiment, a popular way of representing it here. The, is the, the sort of trees we've been talking about here, the, the close, the most, the tips, the leaves here are individual genes. You can barely see them at this scale. Uh, this is a, a, a small subset of the human genes whose RNA expression has been measured or time course of serum stimulation. And considering the, the, the previous slide of different functional categorization, what you, what you want, as you hierarchically arrange these things, you've got time as the natural axis horizontally, and then, then you try to sort them so that they're close together in the, in the, in the hierarchical tree, then you have, uh, uh, and, you've, and you've represented whether they're uh, greatly induced or greatly suppressed by the, during the, this uh, serum stimulation. Um, you, you take one of the time, zero time point as the reference point, and a greatly increase or decrease represented by um, uh, red and green, respectively. And then within each of these clusters, you have uh, little zones where they all have the same kind of pattern of black, gray, green, and red. And so, for example, the E on the, at the bottom in the red zone here is wound healing and tissue remodeling. And this is, these are the sort of genes that you might expect to be enriched uh, in, in, a, in a growth uh, stimulation paradigm such as the one here where you're simulating with serum stimulation of fibroblasts. This is a particular example of, of how you might, but you might want to quantitate this rather than just kind of showing it here. And we're going to walk through exactly how you do that quantitation in a moment. This is just a, a quick snapshot of how far this clustering goes, actually goes well beyond biology, but here's something that's for the, just for slide 32, out of the ra range of uh, RNA expression, here we have compounds on, on the vertical axis and targets, meaning proteins, on the horizontal axis. And you can see all these connections between different um, uh, cancer chemotherapeutics, different cancer cell lines, and, um, and potential targets. But now back to the uh, RNA. And we want to ask, how do we assess the RNA array data collection, the clustering methods, 
and how do we go beyond, and how do we go beyond that in various directions, both as validation of the technical aspect, but as uh, you know, showing that we're actually doing discovery and uh, and getting at mechanism. Okay. So one of the various methods we've used, we already mentioned uh, looking for functional categories, but another one is looking for motifs. If we find a consistent set of motifs, this is a part of the validation process as well. And Quint, these are some of the uh, examples of algorithms. Uh, sort of the first one that leaps to mind when uh, mathematicians and physicists enter the field and the one that we've used to great advantage uh, in the sequence searching part of this uh, course with oligonucleotide frequencies. You can use short oligonucleotides as uh, convenient hashing keys or as ways of doing a lookup, a very rapid lookup for sequences in, uh, in, in uh, finding matches. And this is even more uh, appropriate here for the sort of motifs involved in transcriptional regulation because we know from a variety of, of biological and chemical crystallographic studies that the motifs are in the range of uh, seven to ten nucleotides, uh, often base pairs in double-stranded DNA, and so you can use the nucleotide frequencies. However, they're limited in that uh, they're not as rich as the sort of weight matrices that we got when we got a multi-sequence alignment. And when we were talking about multi-sequence alignments, we pointed out that it was hard to get uh, the algorithms to go to scale beyond the pairwise because Pairwise was was n squared, uh, where n is the sequence length, and then as you as uh, the, the uh, you go to multi-sequence alignment, it goes up exponentially with the number of sequences. You want the number of sequences to be large, though, because the larger it is, the more you learn about the characteristics of that family of sequences. So anyway, GIMP sampling was one of the methods that we said that we would put off to a later class. This is the later class. We'll talk about GIMP sampling as, as a way of the, the idea of sampling this very large space the, where the large number of uh, uh, multi-sequences, the multiple sequences you're comparing, is that you don't want to get trapped in a local minimum. You can have these really greedy, steepest descent algorithms, but you, you'll get to the bottom of that pit but you won't necessarily find the global. Um, if the sampling space is too large, even sampling won't save you because you'll, get, you'll sample a lot of little uh, local minimum and you still won't get it. But anyway, Gibbs is an example where you use randomization to find it. Uh, Meme is an example of uh, maximization of expectation uh, and cluster W and, and so forth are other ways of doing it. We're going to really focus in on one of these. Can't cover everything. We've talked about Gibbs sampling. And we want to put it in the context of, and the thing that might be appealing, why can't we just, if these, the program for, for transcription factor regulation is inherent in the genome, then we should just look at the genome sequence and be able to see patterns of, of motifs in front of genes and, uh, and, then, and then find clusters of genes that are co-expressed and so on. The problem with that picture, even for one of the best case scenarios, say the yeast genome, which is about 12 megabases, uh, is that these, as I said, these transcription control sites are about seven bases, let's say, of information. Um, here's, here's one that will, that will be a star for a few slides here today, uh, after this 
uh, now and after break. Uh, this is GCN4. It ha you can see it has five really, you know, full-scale, two-bit uh, conserved bases, and then the rest of the bases in this motif, uh, the other five bases, uh, might add up to another two bases of information, or 14 bits altogether. Now, 14 bits, you can think of that as 4 to the 7th power, about six, one match every 16,000 bases. Now, if you have a 12 megabase genome, and since it's not symmetric, you have to look at both strands. You have to look, you know, think of, scan, of the transcription factor scanning the DNA in both directions. Then you have 24 megabytes, megabases of uh, sites, 24 million sites. And at random, you expect one over 1,600. So you have a mean of 1,500. Now here we can bring in our old friend, the Poisson distribution. And we remember that the mean and the variance of a Poisson distribution are the same. And so the standard deviation is going to be square root of variance, as it is for all variances and all standard deviations. And so the standard deviation is going to be about 40. So if you expect to, to convincing, convince yourself that you have something interesting, then you want it to be about two or three standard deviations above the mean. So your noise that you're fighting is about, you know, you want to get two and a half times 40, or about 100 sites. Well, many biological phenomena do not have a hundred sites. There are not a hundred. There may not be a hundred GCN4 sites in the genome, for example. Um, and so, what you need is a way of winnowing down the genomes. We're not looking through the whole genome, but we're enriching in various ways. What are the various ways that we can enrich? Well, the first three will lump together as ways that we can biologically uh, cluster. Basically, that was the theme of the first you know, few minutes of, the, of this lecture. Ways that we can put together uh, fine genes that are where the, the gene expression products go up and down together. And that would be, for example, whole genome messenger RNA data. That's the, the top line of slide 36. Uh, or they could be, and we had a little slide on this earlier, of different ways that genes could could show that they should, they should go together. They could have a shared phenotype. You could do knockouts, and they, uh, they have similar biochemical or morphological characteristics, and so you put them in the same functional category. That might be the source of some of the functional categories we've been talking about today. They could be conserved among different species. Species will inherit them, will tend to inherit them as a group, and, and, and others. So this is the example of why genes should go together, and then you'll s reduce the sequence space to be the, reg the, the regulatory elements that go with those genes and not the rest of the genome. And that, that then, those are the ways of selecting the genes, but then there's selecting the sequence uh, itself near those genes or in those genes. You might want to eliminate protein coding regions, repetitive sequences, or any other sequence that's not likely to control sites. This helps you by reducing your sequence space. That's kind of a trivial help, but in a, or actually an important help. But in addition to that, you want they help you by removing traps where you know you're going to find motifs, but they may, but they are unlikely a priori to be relevant to transcription control, which is what you're really trying to get at here to validate and to to extend the discoveries you find from the unsupervised um, clustering. 
And why do I say that? Why would protein coding regions and repetitive regions, repetitive elements, um, be, be a bias? Well, protein coding regions that, for genes that cluster together for some reason or other are likely a priori to have proteins that have similar functions. They're clustering together because they have similar functions. They might share protein domains in common. So you will find nucleic acid motifs that are similar to one another, not because they're involved in regulation, but because they, they, the genetic code turns into protein motifs that are similar to one another, so they can accomplish a similar function, and that's why they... So, and repetitive regions are, are definitely destined to, to, uh, to give motifs in common because uh, of their selfish replication properties, they will, the entire repetitive sequence from edge to edge will uh, jump around the genome. And, uh, and so there won't be a little, these little seven base pair motifs. There'll be you know, a 10 kilobase motif, and that won't tell you much about transcription. Now, having said that, we're, we're in the business of sequence space reduction. Both the, the top three methods and this bottom method will exclude certain kinds of, uh, of uh, discoveries. But once you find a motif, uh, by severely restricting the sequence, you can then search for that motif and pick up the examples that you might have eliminated in the first pass in a, in a much less noisy manner. You've got this bona fide motif, now you want to find all the other examples. In a way, you're testing the specificity of the motif. So, for example, there could be RNA regulatory elements in protein coding regions. They could be some in repetitive regions. In the lecture that we gave on single nucleotide polymorphisms, I... Uh, somewhat perversely chose uh, a very interesting one that occurs in, in one of the most common re dispersed repeats in the human genome, which is the ALU repeat. That one uh, has regulatory significance, but we will exclude it from our search space initially so that we can get plenty of, of good examples in a small uh, box. Okay, so these are the main ways of reducing search space. And... Uh, we're going to illuminate this with a particular algorithm, uh, a modification of the Gibbs motif sampling, which is this one where you sample the, uh, the multi-sequence alignment space randomly so you don't get trapped at a local minimum. And uh, this is called Alignase for Aligned Nucleic Acid Conserved Elements, the, the emphasis on nucleic acid. Uh, and what are the advantages of giving motif sampling alliance? Just for just why are we focusing in on it? Well, it's the tactic sampling, as I said, keeps you out of local minimums. You have a variable number of sites per input sequence. It could be that in the, that in the genes that you found in your cluster, uh, some of them may have three of these motifs in front of it. Others will have one or even zero because it could be that 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 particular gene co-clusters because of some other set of motifs that happen to have the same properties as the motif you're looking at at any given moment. So you can have zero to, to a large number of motifs, and that's important. This algorithm handles it. Other algorithms assume there's exactly one site per sequence, and that introduces uh, noise. Um, you can distribute the information content in various ways. You'll see we can, we can fine-tune the shape of the motif in a way. Um, some of these algorithms were based on proteins. Proteins have only one strand. They don't have a Watson and a Crick strand going in reverse complements to one another. 
And so you need to make a conscious effort to adapt that algorithm so that it's con- that, it, that it, in a certain sense, recognizes the uh, duality and the reverse complements of, of DNA strands. And you have to... Th- this multiple distinct motifs is different from the variable number of sites per sequence. Once you find motif number one, it may be the dominant motif that you find again and again in a, in a, in a, in a multi-sequence alignment. You have to go back and find number two because it could be number one isn't the only or isn't the major biologically significant motif. It could be you need two or three motifs acting in concert. So you can't just rest on your laurels when you find the first motif. And for each motif, there can be multiple examples of them per sequence, anywhere from zero on up. So let's let's make this much more concrete and really drill down to specific examples. This example, the real example, it's uh, taken from the amino acid biosynthetic genes in the yeast saccharomyces. And so here we've applied the two class, two major classes of sequence reduction. The first is by biological uh, function. Here, these are all amino acid biosynthetic genes. Histidine, aromatic amino acids, isoleucine, valine. Uh, these are all on the right-hand side of slide 39. But in addition to the biological reduction of just maybe 116 genes that are involved in this process. We've also done the this, this sequence space reduction near the gene to, to exclude the protein coding regions and only look at 300 to 600 bases upstream. Um, why 300 to 600? If, it's, if the genes are really close together, you, wanna, uh, you don't want to go much beyond 300 because you can enter the protein coding region of an adjacent gene. If the genes are very far apart in this particular part of the genome, you don't want to go much more than 600, or else you'll end up in the repetitive sequences or other things uh, that are unre- other regulatory elements that are unrelated to your particular protein, or you might end up in an RNA encoding gene. So 300, 600 is good for this particular organism, but you might need a different one for, say, human. You're going to have to look in introns and much further upstream, which makes it a much more difficult problem. Anyway, this is the sequence reduction phase, and now let's say, well, do you see? The motifs in here, right? I mean, those of you who are who are good computing, you know, should be able to do this algorithm in your head. Um, but here's the answer, and then we're gonna now we're gonna go through and we're gonna say how we got to that answer with the Gibbs sampling alignase algorithm. The answer here is GCN4. Uh, this particular, this is the one we used to illustrate. We have about seven bits of information here in this Snyder logo format, and uh, on the Lower right, it has a map score that we'll define uh, soon enough. Um, basically, the higher the map score, the better. It has to be greater than zero to be non-random. And here's on the left-hand side of slide 40 is the multi-sequence alignment, just like the multi-sequence alignments we talked about in the past lecture, uh, two lectures ago. Um, and and here in red, all these arrows they point either uh, left to right or right to left, depending which strand they're on so they're not exact reverse complements, although this does have a little bit of symmetry in it. But you can see that they have anywhere from one to two of these in front of uh, each of these genes. Okay, so now how do we get there? Let's go step by step. And some of you may find this algorithm counterintuitive at first, so, so don't be surprised if it is. The first step is we randomly seed, we plop down 
say, uh, 10 mer sequences, 10 nucleotides long, arbitrarily pick that as our length, and uh, plot them down randomly on these sequences here. So we have uh, represented seven of the 116 amino acid biosynthetic genes upstream regions here. And we've highlighted in red arbitrarily uh, two, two red 10 mers on the top one, and then none on the second one, and then one on the third one, and so on. And then, and then since those are given, and, the, and which is the, the first position is given, then it's a trivial matter to line them up, just take all the first positions and you take a, uh, a sum, and that's, that's the uh, weight matrix. Now you wouldn't expect, since these were all randomly chosen from real sequences, you wouldn't expect this to be uh, an astoundingly non-random weight matrix, and it's not. It has a map score that's negative, and as I said, that's basically random. A few bases tend to stick their head up a little bit above the, the random noise of, of uh, you know, 0.25 if this were a random genome or whatever the base composition is, and none of them are full scale at two bits. That is to say, none of them are perfectly represented. So now, what's the next step? That's the initial seeding, and it gives you a flavor for what's going to happen next. But, what, but there's, there's some interesting things that you can do to, to increase the chances of getting a good motif. So the next thing you do is you add, either you add another site. You add another 10 mer. So the, the, the first, the top row, site 42, the top sequence, already has two, but you add another one. You add a third one. You know, sequence uh, number two, arrow four, still doesn't have any. But you added a third one randomly at the top. And now you've got two sequence alignments. You really haven't been able to do anything up to this point. You've got now two multi-sequence alignments, and you ask, which one's better? Well, let's say the one on, on the right's a little bit better. The one you added a sequence to is a little bit better. Now, you don't just blind the program. doesn't just blindly accept this as the better multi-sequence alignment. It has a, uh, a probability, a, a probability that you will accept this. And that's, again, to keep you from going through a completely greedy algorithm. Everything, every improvement is going to be probabilistic. Okay, and that, but you will definitely very greatly tend to accept each improvement. Okay, so uh, so this was adding a, bit, uh, a a sequence. That's how you might improve it, or you can remove one. You remove. Uh, uh, you can add and remove uh, another two from the top sequence here. Add one, remove one. And now you ask this if the multi-sequence on the right is a little bit better. If it is, then you have a high probability of accepting those two, you know, the add and the remove changes. These are adding and removing entire sequences. Uh, keep going, adding and removing. Okay. Another thing you can do is you can say, well, maybe the, maybe the, the important bases aren't all smack in a row, ten in a row. Maybe, uh, maybe you want to make it a little bit longer. Maybe the motif should be a little bit longer. Maybe some of the ones in the middle aren't important. So we'll, we'll toggle them, one of them off and move the, the columns over. So now the motif's a little bit wider, but it still has the same number of columns. And if that improves, if that gives you a better math score, you know, a greater surprise, in a sense, probability that you've got, um, uh, that you would have this number of sites that are that are shared to this degree in this number of sequences, uh, then you have a high probability of accepting that change. Now you're not just changing the collection of, of sequences you think belong to that motif family, but you're actually 
uh, changing the structure of the uh, uh, element that you're going to call the weight matrix. You're changing the column structure. And that's also probabilistic. And out of all this randomness, given many cycles, you eventually get the best motif. This might be the best motif for this particular um, learning set. But now, you want to get the second best motif, because this isn't necessarily the biologically best motif, and this one may not act but alone. It may have another one that's also enriched, and it could be that their co-occurrence is even more significant than either one of them occurring singly. Okay? Um, so, what do we do? And I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a little break, and then... Uh, <laughs> When we come back, your incredible curiosity will be satisfied as to how we uh, get the second motif. Okay, so take a little break.